Welcome back to episode number 219 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're discussing the current status of combustible dust safety in Belgium and giving example case studies. We're doing that with Michel van der Weyer, Explosion Safety Consultant from ISMA, based out of Antwerp, Belgium. Michel, welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm very excited to have you on. You're extremely knowledgeable in this topic of explosion safety, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I probably will not attempt to say your last name too many more times in the episode, <laughs> but uh, I tried to get out one good time for the audience so that they, they can get it. So thank you for, for going through that with me. <laughs> no issue. I met Michelle back in Ishmi last year, and Ishmi, for the audience members that don't know, is the International Symposium on Hazards Prevention and Mitigation of Industrial Explosions. That was last year in Braunschweig, Germany. And that's mostly a research conference. We do have some insurance companies come present, some industries that are there taking part, watching the presentations, being involved in the exhibition. But there's a lot of master students, PhD students, university students presenting their, their academic research at that type of conference as well. It was in Germany last year, and Michelle thankfully came from the industry side to, to watch the event, get to know what's going on in that research world. Had some really nice words to say about what we're doing with the podcast and dust safety science. So thank you again, Michelle, for for those. I took those really kind words and 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 brought them back here to Canada to our team and and use that to say what a good job they're doing. So thank thank you for that. But more than that, we had some really good discussions about combustible dust safety in his neck of the woods, which is Belgium, Netherlands, Germany, basically all through Europe as well. But I really like to get folks on the podcast and the audience really likes it as well to learn about combustible dust safety as a global, let's say global community, a global strategy to protecting and preventing fires and explosions, understanding what's working, what's not working, what some of the similarities and differences are. And that's what we're going to talk about today is dust safety in Belgium, Netherlands, Germany. And we've done this before on the podcast back in episode 180, 188, we had explosion safety in Pakistan with Mohammed Saeb. Back in 157, we had Explosive Safety in Israel with Shea Segev. Episodes 122 and 123, we had in Australia and New Zealand with Dr. Chris Bloor and Dr. Jim Moreau. We had Kumar Rajasegaram on in 89, way back then. I think in Malaysia, we were talking about there. And we most recently, last week, had Brian Edwards and Dilip Arulapan on from Fike talking about North America and Europe and how combustible dust safety is similar and different in those regions of the world as well, which is kind of similar to this topic today. So we'll get another flavor of that from Michelle. Michelle, I think a kind of great way to jump into this discussion, just what is your, your role in industry today and what kind of work do you do as an explosion safety consultant? Well, you know, Belgium and the Netherlands, they have a very strongly developed industry. And a lot of that industry concerns combustible dust. They have that these problems with combustible dust. And our task there is to guide these companies into controlling these dust explosion risks, but also gas explosion risks. What is my specific job? My, what I do is, it is very versatile, actually. It's not just one specific thing. We give training, but we also do risk analysis. We assist companies with the necessary legal documentation and so on. But we also do incident analysis. 
Uh, we do calculations on equipment strengths and so on. Everything actually that comes to mind when tackling explosion safety problematics. We work in all different sectors of the industry, from petrochemical to food and feed industries and from small businesses to multinationals. And that is almost a guarantee that we have never the same job twice. Uh, there's always some difference between the companies in philosophy and safety level, which is also a very important thing to take into mind. I believe that the work is also very necessary. There's not that much incident data available, but from our experience and from statistics, the few statistics that are available, dust or gas explosions happens once a week, only in Belgium and the Netherlands, if we take that into account. Most often, these explosions have very limited consequences and they stay under the radar. The problem there is that other companies feel like it cannot happen to them because they don't hear about it. Uh, we try to give advice in a way that works for them. This means our recommendations must be safe, but also realistic and workable. This good workable advice is based on three factors. First, we try to give our customers up-to-date knowledge of the science behind dust and gas explosions. And so we must stay up-to-date, and that is why we also went to ISPMI, where we met each other last year. But also, there are standards and legislation that constantly changes. And ISMA is a member in these normalization committees, and we contribute into development of standards and guidelines. So we try to stay on top of that. So the knowledge about explosions and dust explosions is present in our company, but we also come in industrial processes. We need to evaluate the process flows. And if you don't know anything about processes, you cannot evaluate correctly the explosion risk that comes from that process. So all of our consultants, they have a really profound background in these industrial processing installations. So we can actually give the best of both worlds. We know a lot of, about explosions and dust explosions, but we also know a lot about these processes, uh, these industrial processes that we very often meet. The third pillar we base ourselves on is why our our advice is, is, I believe, a good advice, is that we don't sell hardware. We have no interest in advising our customer the most expensive protection measure that is on the market. We are part of a larger group that includes Stuvix. Stuvix is a hardware manufacturer, but we must operate independent. And that gives us a freedom to really aim for the best solution for the customer. And even if the customer wishes to work with another supplier like Fico Rembe, we can still support our customer that way. So that is actually what we try to do, what we try to provide to our customers to give them the correct information in a way that is practically workable for them in an honest way. Makes sense to me. And I picked up the three points as, you know, staying up to date with technology and science, staying involved, like being involved in the committees that are developing the standards related to gas and dust explosions, and then the third being independent. And those are three things that are really important for a company to maintain its edge, to maintain the smarts of its folks like yourself, and also be able to give recommendations that are 
you know, unbiased in a certain way. And, and many companies run in different ways, but it's interesting to see and hear how ISMA works that way. I think to give the context in Belgium, just so folks have a bit of a background, like what are the, some of the major industries maybe that we wouldn't see elsewhere? I'm thinking, you know, would there be a heavy dairy industry in the Netherlands, like milk powder and that sort of thing? Are there industries that say we wouldn't see elsewhere in Europe or even North America as often that you'd be dealing with on a day-to-day basis that folks may not be familiar with? I don't think there's very specific industries in Belgium or the Netherlands that you cannot find anywhere else. But it's, uh, I think, more of a scaling issue. The, the companies in Belgium and the Netherlands are really large, especially when we're talking about food and feed industry. It's very localized and therefore very upscaled, as sort to say. No, that makes sense. The other point I want to just just um, restate that you said you, you were seeing from your experience in Belgium and Netherlands, you're seeing you know, probably an explosion every week. And I would say that that's definitely in line with what we see. I mean, we report one major incident in the United States a week, like one that's big enough to make the local news. My guess is there's at least a hundred times that that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you look at the population difference between Belgium and United States, about a factor of probably 10 or so. So yeah, it, it sort of it sort of makes sense, and it's more often than people would think, right? But like you mentioned, most of the time, it's left to damages, and you know, so nobody's getting injured, so it's not getting reported out. Although I would say they're probably still pretty expensive, <laughs> and so that's a challenge with companies, right? When this happens, if they aren't acknowledging what they've lost in terms of production, downtime, maintenance, parts, equipment, then there may not be an initiative inside the company to drive them to change. So even if you aren't making the local news with your fire explosion, it's probably good to look at that to say, how do we recoup that revenue next year by maybe bringing in folks like yourself to do a, a hazard assessment, a hazard analysis, putting in explosion protection, those sort of things. Any comments on that before we kind of go into the, I guess we'll call it the regulation landscape of Belgium? Anything you're seeing with these, these different companies, even the larger ones you're working with in Belgium, that when they have an incident that's not making the local news or that there you know, isn't being reported, any, any words of wisdom? Like, yes, they should be looking at how much that costs or any, any insights that you have from that type of work? From my personal experience, I think a lot of companies think they were lucky that time. And they say, okay, we were lucky, but the possibility of this happening again is not uh, is not realistic. By example, yeah. they had a truck with smoldering material that arrived, and uh, okay, we will put infrared detection there, and then we are safe. And uh, this is not going to happen again. And most of the time, that is the case. The possibility of an explosion happening is very small, very slim. The possibility of happening twice at the same company is even smaller, but that's a dangerous way of thinking, I believe. And maybe doesn't stand up. Like if you look at the data, I'm not sure if it actually is true. <laughs> like if you take all the all the industry out there and look at the ones that have had an explosion, and then if you predicted the ones that are going to have your next explosion, chances are it's it's almost like if you had one, you're more likely to have more than one. But I don't know. I don't have the data to figure that out. <laughs> um, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to look at it. I want to cycle back to kind of Belgium. So what we like to do in these international episodes, one is to get your experience. And I really want to get into the examples and stories you have because mm-hmm. they're, they're very good. We had a lot of good chats uh, uh, in Germany there. But from like a regulatory or even just a general approach to combustible dust safety, 
in Belgium and the Netherlands, what what kind of processes are followed so that folks can can understand what's going on in that part of the world? Yeah, fair enough, Chris. Well, Belgium and the Netherlands, they are located in, the, in Europe. Huh? They fall under the European Union. And the European Union has drafted some legislation on the European level. And this legislation is the ATEX legislation. This should sound familiar to most of the listeners. But there are two different ATEX directives, as they are called. At the moment, they are called ATEX 114 and ATEX 153. Shortly summarized, the ATEX 114 is an economical directive, and it sets the bar for manufacturers and equipment for protective systems and for use in possible explosive atmospheres, and they must fulfill that directive and the, the standards that are referred to in that directive. ATEX 153, the other directive, is a social directive. It is meant for the protection of workers, workers that come into contact with combustible dust, combustible gases, that they can work safe. Now, what is the tricky part in Europe? Europe can write directives, but they are not enforceable from Europe. They must be implemented in national laws. So each country that falls under the European Union must incorporate these legislations into their own laws. The 114, ATEX 114, the economical directive, this is to be implemented literally. A country cannot choose to be more stringent or less stringent. So this actually means that equipment bought in, in Spain, by example, is uh, equal regarding the level of safety as in another country, let's say uh, Sweden. They all must be in conformity to the ATEX 114 directive, and they must follow the same European standards and pr procedures like certification and testing. They all have the same backgrounds. They all have the same legislation where they come from, where the safety level is guaranteed. So that's actually not that hard. Huh? However, there's also ATEX 153, the social directive, and each country can choose to implement this more stringent. They can add extra legislation to that. That's why there's a lot of differences between the different European countries. Even though the original legislation was the same, literally, they all implemented a national legislation on a different way. And that is quite of an issue for countries with different establishments or branches in different countries, because they need to see on national level what is exactly what I must do in this country. To give you specifically the situation for Belgium, the ATEX 153 legislation is covered for the larger part in the legislation for the well-being of personnel. It's called the Codex. But there's also a part that is incorporated in the regulations on electrical installations called the array. And since Belgium is also divided into different regions, also some of the legislation is different between the regions like Flanders and the French part and the German part. So actually that does not make it too easy 
to apply the correct legislations into the different countries. Even in Belgium, there are differences. In the Netherlands, by example, this is included in the Arbo legislations. In the UK, it's DSEAR legislation, and so on, so on. So, to summarize, every country has its own gimmicks, its own standards, guidelines, or even additional legal requirements that must be taken into account. And that makes our work so challenging from time to time. Coming into the interview, you were a little bit nervous, I think, about your, your English but I don't know if I've ever heard more of a succinct breakdown of how ATEX works than you just gave there. Thanks. Uh, so you did an excellent job. Um, I actually learned, I've, I've, I learned quite a bit as you explained that. So I'll summarize a bit, ATEX 114, that's the economical directive covering manufacturers of equipment. Um, ATEX 153 is the social directive covering workers and their, their protection, their safety. ATEX 114 then, the manufacturer's directive, you're saying is is required by all EU state, all EU countries to be adopted in a similar manner, so that trade can occur, and you're getting you know one piece of equipment from one country is has to be similar to another. But ATEX one five three, the social directive, needs to be adopted by each country individually, and maybe even each region or municipality or local inside a country could adopt different versions of it and that could be adopting 153 directly 153 plus some extra or a different you know kind of version altogether. Um, i'm sure there's some rules and requirements there but the the differences are that then it's adopted differently in different places that leads to a couple of ones that you mentioned in belgium you have codex with additional requirements of arei which covers electrical installations in the uk you have the DSER, D-S-E-A-R legislation, which people on the podcast would have heard before. In the Netherlands, you have ARBO legislation. And these are all to adopt probably in slightly different ways, which you mentioned makes your, your job a little bit harder. Uh, ATEX 153, the social directive for the protection of workers. Did I give, I think you gave a better summary of it than I did, Michelle, but did I did I cover what you, what you covered there? Yeah, absolutely, Chris, spot on. And so in Belgium, then you meant, I think we're probably on top of this in a minute too, but you mentioned the AREI, which covers electrical installations. Are there anything specifically in Belgium that, and even the Netherlands that are, that are different than what you'd see in the UK or other countries that have adopted ATEX 153 in different ways? Or is it just kind of like the wordings? Yeah. Is the wording different or is it like actually when you go to site and implement and do some work, you need to do things in a different way? Yeah, well, the fundamentals are the same. Uh, so it's it's always the same philosophy that's behind it. But how to reach the safety level and the basics of that legislation, this is different in the different countries. What do you have to fulfill? How do you draw your zoning plans? Do they need to be checked by an independent organism or not? These things. It's all little details, but a lot of paperwork that's different between the countries to reach that same goal that is outlined in the ATEX 153 legislations. Okay. And I, in, in our previous discussions, you kind of mentioned that you like to break it down to three steps for the ATEX legislation. I, and I think we're going through some examples for each step. So what are these three steps as sort of a framework for people to be thinking about this? The 153 legislation is indeed based on these three steps. Uh, first step is actually you should evaluate if there's a possibility 
for an explosive atmosphere or not. It's called zoning, ATEX zoning. Normally, this should be familiar for everyone listening. To summarize, for dust, we speak of a zone 22, a zone 21, and a zone 20, where zone 20 is the worst, and zone 22 is like, it's not very, very likely, but it cannot be completely excluded. Zone 21 is everything in between. And as a company, you should identify these zones, and you should aim to reduce the size of them. It's not just saying, well, we leave everything under the dust and we just call it the zone 21. No, you should always look for ways to reduce them, to make them as small as possible, and also try to make as many zones as you can a zone 22. It's actually the first step. Think about the, the hazardous areas that are in your installation and around your installation. The second step is, well, if you have done that exercise correctly and thoroughly, then you should look for ignition sources. If you define a zone, if you have a hazardous area, you should eliminate the possibility of an ignition source happening there. Because if you have the possibility of an explosive dust cloud, if you add an ignition source, you have an explosion. So these ignition sources must be evaluated if they are relevant and if they are significant. And the difference between these two is you should check if they are able to be formed, and then they are relevant for your installation, but they must also be significant. They must be able to ignite the product at hand, the product that is present there. Because, for example, a corona discharge it can happen at every point the object in an installation, but it's not able to uh, ignite most of the uh, hazardous mixtures. But to make that evaluation, you should be well aware of the characteristics of your product and also what is the ignition source, how is it formed, what is the energy, you should be able to make that evaluation correctly. The ATEX legislation provides us with the criterion of what is an acceptable risk. It is only logical that zone 20, it has more strict requirements in comparison to a zone 22. In a zone 22, by example, if you have an ignition source, it should be avoided in normal operation. In a zone 21, you should consider foreseeable faults, like uh, failure of bearing or rupture of components or these things. And in zone 20, this ignition source should also be excluded in rare faults or multiple foreseeable faults happening at the same time. So the evaluation of an, uh, of an ignition source can happen must be done, but you should also take into account the degree of the zone. And that combined gives you your risk. And then you can see if it's acceptable or not. So first step is to identify the zones. The second step is to identify your ignition sources. The main risk is acceptable or not. And the third step is that you should consider the mitigation of the consequence of the explosion. By example, ignition sources cannot always be excluded by a sufficient degree of certainty especially when we talk about the inside of process equipment. By example, if we take a filter casing, you have a practically permanent dust cloud 
a dust filter always extracts from points where an ignition source might be sucked up. This means that there remains a residual risk that is unacceptably high. And therefore, you should reduce the consequences of an explosion if it happens. By example, you could add vent panels to your filter casing. But it's important that you take these three steps in the correct order. Most often, a company just puts vent panels on equipment and says, well, it's safe. And that's not the correct way to do it. So you should first try to reduce your zones. Secondly, try to eliminate your ignition sources. And only then can you resort to measures like vent panels, suppression systems, and these things. And these exercises, they must be recorded in an explosion protection document, which is also a legal requirement. So every company that works with combustible dust or gas must have such an explosion protection document where they research exactly these three steps plus some uh, organizational measures. But that's actually the clue of this explosion protection document. Yeah, thank you for that excellent summary again. And the three steps... Um, that I wrote down here were explosive atmospheres, ignition sources, and mitigation of consequences. And you've, you've added, uh, I guess, the ATEX standards, but your description of it has added in some key things that I want to highlight. We've talked on the podcast before, but it's like, yeah, I've never, I never thought about it in this way. So what I want to bring up is, I'll grab the podcast episode number. Yeah, episode 133 with Dr. Paul Amiot, we talked about inherently safer design, um, implementing inherently safer design using bow analysis for combustible dust hazards. So inherently safer design includes steps like elimination of the hazard, moderation of the hazard, and minimization of the hazard. And under some traditional ways of looking at combustible dust, it can be difficult to see how to apply those sort of approaches. And it really just moves to sort of like an example base. Like if I have a, a dust filter or a dust collector, these are examples of ways to um, include inherently safer design. But the way that these three steps are broken down, you can start to see how some of these elements fit in really nicely. And I haven't talked to Michelle about this before because it's just coming to mind as he's talking to it. But we think about step one, you know, explosive atmospheres. So you do your zoning. You have zones 22 through 21 and 20. And your first thing, and Michelle said, it like, let's try to eliminate the zones. Can we get rid of the dust? <laughs> um, so that's inherently safer. And then can we moderate? Okay, well, let's move, try to move that area from a zone 20, which is the worst case condition, to a zone 21 or maybe even zone 22 where it's unlikely to have the explosive atmosphere. And if we can't do that, then, and I don't know if I've, I'm sure I've heard people say it this way, but again, you just said it really clear. Well, let's make the zone smaller. That's an excellent example of minimization. If the zone 22 is, or the zone 20 rather is, is so big, whatever size is, can we make that smaller? And you're making your system inherently safer by doing those activities before you start jumping into engineering controls, which really don't come in. There's probably some engineering controls that can come in in the ignition source protection, but less so than once you get to mitigation of consequences. So I really like this approach of looking at explosive atmospheres first, identify, eliminate, moderate, minimize, look at your ignition sources, really do the same thing. Can we eliminate them? Can we moderate or change them? Maybe maybe surface temperature of a motor is identified as a potential ignition source. Well, can we run that less frequent or in a way put insulation on? I'm kind of making that part up. Some way to, to minimize making it cooler. 
might be a way to moderate or, or minimize the hazard there. And then you said, is it significant for ignition sources? So they have to be possible and they also have to be significant. Typically, what we look at there is the MIE, the minimum ignition energy of that combustible dust as a cloud or as a surface, depending on the condition you're looking at. And comparing that to what can actually be generated on site, you mentioned corona discharge, that would have some sort of ignition energy generated by that. And if it's less than the amount enough to ignite that dust cloud, then you know that's maybe a possible ignition source, but it's not significant. So we're really taking a critical look at these different elements of combustible dust safety before we even get to mitigation of consequences. Okay, now it's time. We've, we've identified that there's hazardous area, area explosive atmosphere, that there's ignition source. Now it's time to figure out, okay, is it vents? Is it suppression? Is it detect and suppress? For spark detection side, like what is the actual consequence, the actual mitigation methods? I want to go through some examples because you and I had talked about a number of different really great examples in Germany and then before this podcast episode as well. But before for that, are there any sort of high level, like before we're going to go to, I think, an example in each one of these three areas, but any high level points or anything that um, you wanted to mention about that you see challenges before we go into the three examples that we have here? Yeah, Chris, absolutely. The ATEX legislation was introduced in 2003 and there was a lot of attention around it and all companies were made aware you should do your homework now. At that time, a lot of companies drafted their explosion protection document. The issue is that for not a little amount of companies, this explosion document is still in exactly the same state as it was in 2003, 2004. It was just, as they say, dead wordings, dead letters. They don't look at it. The maintaining and the mastering of these documents poses a lot of difficulties in a lot of companies. The explosion protection document should be up to date at all times, also from legal perspective, but also to be workable. The idea behind it is that with every change that you make in your process, albeit raw materials, process parameters, whatever, the EPD must be consulted. And it should be investigated what the consequences of this change will be in the risk analysis. You should do this exercise before implementing a change. And if you work that way, you really master the explosion risks in your company. And that is why we always say you should make the explosion protection document an inherent part of your management of change process and your management of change philosophy. In practice, this is most often not the case. If we look at big chemical and petrochemical companies, they, they know what they're doing and they have their things in order also because there is a lot of supervision from the government. However, if we look at smaller companies with limited resources or lower risk industries, this is often not okay. And not in the least in the food and the feed industry. Let it be that category of companies where dust explosions form an important risk. And also, if we look at your Dustex research reports, which are a great inspiration for us, 50% share of the dust explosions happen in food or feed industry. Of course, it's an industry that is, uh, is a large scale in general. 
so it's also account for a larger share in the share in the incident statistics but the equipment used like elevators silos dust filters and so on the product they use which is known to pose risks of smoldering fire auto combustibility and these things it's actually a great mixture for dust explosions and also the safety culture in these companies is not the same as let's say in chemical and petrochemical companies so that's actually a bit of an issue and overlying problem the mastering of the explosion protection document and the correct implementation into standards into procedures in the company itself yeah i wanted to give you a chance to talk about that because i know we had discussed explosion protection documents and same thing with here in north america with the dust hazard analysis where it should be a, a living document that needs to be reviewed and maintained at a minimum and then integrated into your management change process if you don't have one or if, if you have one and if you don't have a management change process, then the creation of management change process should be identified in the, the dust hazard analysis document. But the whole point is that it, it's going to change over time. As you process different materials, as you get new technologies in place, it needs to be evaluated and addressed and brought forward with that. I think you mentioned that very often you're brought in to evaluate exposure protection document. And it's the first time anybody's looked at it since it's been created, which probably is then cost them much more to move forward both in time and, and probably real dollars than if it was an incremental change. Like they've been integrating with their management change process all along. Now it's just another change. It's, it's probably closer to going back and redoing the whole, whole thing. Let's, let's get into some examples here. Hey, this is Chris here. This episode actually ended up running a little bit long with Michelle over sort of our, our hour mark that we typically try to keep things within. So we decided to break into two parts. So in this episode, which was episode 219 of the podcast, we talked with Michelle about his role in industry, how combustible dust safety is approached in Belgium and in the Netherlands, what processes are followed, the three steps to the ATEX legislation as he sees it, which is first the prevention and identification of explosive atmospheres, second to prevent ignition sources, and third to mitigate the consequences of an explosion if you cannot uh, reduce the explosive atmospheres or prevent the ignition sources. We covered a lot of groundwork in between, talking about things like explosion protection documents, dust hazard analysis, combustible dust testing, training, education, and a lot more as well. And next week on the podcast, we're gonna come back and go through some examples and case studies from Michelle's experience in this area within Netherlands, within Belgium, and within Europe as well in the work that he does. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I really appreciate everything you're doing in the handling combustible dust around the world, whether it's over here in North America, over there in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, elsewhere in the world. We appreciate what you're doing out there. Keep it up.